The Prehistoric World or Vanished Races by E.A. Allen. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Preface. In this volume, the author has sought to lay before the reader a description of life and times lying beyond the light of history. This is indeed an extensive subject, and calls for some explanation both as to the general design of the work and what steps have been taken to secure correct information. History is a word of varied import. In general, when we talk about history, we mean those accounts of past events, times, and circumstances of which we have written records not necessarily meaning alphabetical writing, because hieroglyphic records have furnished much true history. Hieroglyphic writing, which long preceded alphabetical writing, is itself a comparatively recent art. In no country do we find any records carrying us further back than a few thousand years before the Christian era. We have every reason to believe that the historical part of man's life on the globe is but an insignificant part of the whole. This historic period is not the same in all countries. It varies from a few centuries in our own country to a few thousands of years in Oriental lands. In no country is there a hard and fast line separating the historic period from the prehistoric. In the dim perspective of years, the light gradually fades away. The mist grows thicker and thicker before us, and we at last find ourselves face to face with the unknown past. This extensive period of time is not, however, utterly lost to us we have simply to gather our information in some other way. Enthusiastic explorers digging beneath the ashes of Vesuvius have brought to light the remains of an entombed city. Of this city we indeed have historic records, but even if all such records had long since disappeared, we would gather much information as to the nationality of the inhabitants, their customs and manners, by a simple inspection of the relics themselves. Everywhere over the earth, entombed beneath the feet of the living or crumbling on the surface, are the few relics of a past far antedating the relics of Pompeii. They are the proofs positive that some people inhabited the land in faraway times. Our object is to gather together the conclusions of the scientific world as to primitive man. We wish to see how far back in the geological history of the globe we can find evidence of man's existence and we desire to learn his surroundings and the manner of his life. There can be no more important field than for us to thus learn of the past. To read the story of primitive man, to walk with him the earth in ages long ago, with him to wage war on the huge animals of a previous epoch, to recede with him before the relentless march of the ice of the glacial age, to watch his advance in culture to investigate whether there are any races of men now living which are the direct descendants of this primeval man. The author makes no claims to original investigations. He trusts, however, it will not be considered impertinent for a mere loiterer in the vestibule of the Temple of Science to attempt to lay before others the results of the investigations of our eminent scholars. He has endeavored faithfully to perform this task. As far as possible, technical language has been avoided. This is because he has written not for the distinctively scientific men, but rather for the farmer, the mechanic, and the man of business. Constant references are made to the authorities consulted. The reader has a right to know who vouches for the statements made in the text. The pleasantest part of an author's duty is to return thanks for assistance. 
After the manuscript was prepared with what care could be bestowed upon it, it was determined to submit it to some of our best American scholars for criticism. Accordingly, each of the gentlemen named on the title page were requested to review one or more chapters. As far as possible, each one was asked to review that chapter or chapters for which, either by reason of the position they held or the interest they were known to take in such subjects, they would by common assent be acknowledged as eminently fitted to sit in judgment. In justice to them, it should be stated that they were not expected to concern themselves with the literary merits or demerits of the manuscript, but to criticize the scientific statements made therein. To each and all of these gentlemen, the author would acknowledge his deep obligations. We are indebted to Reverend J.P. McLean, the well-known archaeologist, both for many valuable suggestions and for the use of woodcuts on pages 60, 138, and 396. We are also under obligation to Reverend S.D. Pete, editor of the American Antiquarian, for cuts illustrative of the effigy mounds of Wisconsin. The officials of the Smithsonian Institution and the Bureau of Ethnology have our thanks for many cuts, for which credit is given them throughout the work. Finally, the author wishes to say that it was the intention to make this work the joint production of the author and his partner, Mr. S.C. Ferguson. But before any progress was made, it was deemed advisable to change the program. While the literary work has all been performed by the author, the many details necessary connected with the publication of a book were attended to by Mr. Ferguson. E. A. Allen, Cincinnati, January 1st, 1885. Thou unrelenting past, strong are the barriers round thy dark domain, and fetters, sure and fast, hold all that enter thy unbreathing reign. Far in thy realm, withdrawn, old empires sit in sullenness and gloom, and glorious ages gone, lie deep within the shadow of thy womb. Full many a mighty name lurks in thy depths, unuttered, unrevered, with all thee are silent fame. Forgotten arts and wisdom disappeared. W. C. Bryant Chapter 1 Introduction Difficulties of the subject, lessons to be learned, the pursuit of knowledge, recent advances, prehistoric past of the old world, of the new, of Mexico in the south, the isles of the Pacific, similar nature of the relics, the wonders of the present age, history of popular opinion on the subject, the teachings of the Bible, nature of the evidence of man's antiquity, geology, astronomy, Unfolding of Life, Nature of Our Inquiry. Who can read the book of the past? Who can tell us the story of creation's morn? It is not written in history, neither does it live in tradition. There is mystery here, but it is hid by the darkness of bygone ages. There is a true history here, but we have not learned well the alphabet used. Here are doubtless wondrous scenes, but our standpoint is removed by time so vast, the mist of years is so thick before us, that only the ruder outlines can be determined. The delicate tracery, the body of the picture, are hidden from our eye. The question as to the antiquity and primitive history of man is full of interest in proportion as the solution is beset with difficulties. 
We question the past, but only here and there a response is heard. Surely bold is he who would attempt, from the few data at hand, to reconstruct the history of times and people so far removed. We quickly become convinced that many centuries and tens of centuries have rolled away since man's first appearance on the earth. We become impressed with the fact that multitudes of people have moved over the surface of the earth and sunk into the night of oblivion without leaving a trace of their existence, without a memorial through which we might have at least learned their names. To think of ourselves is to imagine for our own nation an immortality. We are so great, so strong, surely nothing can move us. Let us learn humility from the past, and when here and there we come upon some reminder of a vanished people, trace the proofs of a teeming population in ancient times, and recover somewhat of a history, as true and touching as any that poets sing. Let us recognize the fact that nations as well as individuals pass away and are forgotten. The past guards its secrets well. To learn of it, we must seek new methods of inquiry. Discouraged by the difficulties in the way, many have supposed it hidden from the present by a veil which only thickens as time passes. In the remains of prehistoric times, they have failed to recognize the pages of history. They saw only monuments of ancient skill and perseverance. Interesting sketches, not historical portraits. Some writers have held that we must give up the story of the past. Whether fact or chronology, doctrine or mythology, whether in Europe, Asia, Africa or America, at Thebes or Palenque, on Lycian shore or Salisbury plain, lost is lost and gone is gone forevermore. Such is the lament of a gifted writer, amongst the first to ponder over the mysteries of the past. At the present day, with better means at hand, a more hopeful view is taken. But here a caution is necessary, for in attempting to reconstruct the history of primitive times, such is the interest which it inspires, that many allow imagination to usurp the place of research and write in terms too glowing for history. The human mind is sleepless in the pursuit of knowledge. It is ever seeking new fields of conquest. It must advance. With it, standing still is the precursor of defeat. If necessary, it invents new methods of attack and rests not until it gains its objective point or demonstrates the hopelessness of its quest. The world needs but be informed that on a given point knowledge is dim and uncertain. When there are found earnest minds applying to the solution of the mystery all the energies of their natures. All the resources of science are brought to bear. Every department of knowledge is made to contribute of its store, and soon a mass of facts is established, and a new science is added to the department of human knowledge. Thus, with our knowledge of prehistoric times, what so seemingly vain as to attempt to roll back the flight of time and learn the condition of primeval man? All the light of ancient history makes but little impression on the night of time. By its aid, we can but dimly see the outlines of the 40th century back. Beyond is gloom, soon lost in sight. But a few short years ago, men did not think it possible to gain further information. With the materials at hand, this could not be done. The triumph of the intellect was simply delayed and not hopelessly repulsed. Geology was but just beginning to make good its claim to a place among the sciences. This unfolded to man the physical history of the world as read from the rocks, 
and deals with times so vast and profound that we speak no longer of years, but of ages. And with the aid of geology, grand secrets were wrung from the past, and new light was thrown on the manners and customs of primitive man. Thus the foundation for still another science was laid, called archaeology, or the science of human antiquities. These two sister sciences are the keys by whose aid we have not only acquired much information of the past that seemed a hopeless enigma, but, as Columbus on the waste of waters could perceive traces of land as yet invisible, so can the present seekers after knowledge trace the signs of a satisfactory solution of many of the great questions relating to the origin and history of the vanished races of mankind. In whatever land we commence our investigations, we quickly come upon the evidences of an ancient life long antedating all historical information. Ancient Egypt has been a fruitful theme for the antiquarian's pen. The traveler has moralized over the ruins of her past greatness, and many pointed illustrations of national growth and decay have been drawn from her history. Here was the seat of an ancient civilization, which was in the zenith of its power many centuries before Christ. The changes that have passed over the earth since that time are far more wonderful than any ascribed to the wand of the magician. Nations have come and gone, and the land of the pharaohs has become an inheritance for strangers. New sciences have enriched human life, and the fair structure of modern civilization has arisen on the ruins of the past. Many centuries, with their burden of human hopes and fears, have sped away into the past, since hundred-gated Thebes sheltered her teeming population, where now are but a mournful group of ruins. Yet today, far below the remorseless sands of her desert, we find the rude flint flakes that require us to carry back the time of man's first appearance in Egypt to a past so remote that her stately ruins become a thing of yesterday in comparison to them. In the New World, mysterious mounds and gigantic earthworks arrest our attention. Here we find deserted mines, and there we can trace the sites of ancient camps and fortifications. The Indians of the prairies seem to be intruders on a fairer civilization. We find here evidences of a teeming population. In the presence of their imposing ruins, we cannot think that nomadic savages built them. They give evidences rather of a people having fixed habitations and seem to imply the possession of a higher civilization than that of the Indians. These questions demand solution. But how shall we solve the problem? Save here and there a deserted camp or a burial mound containing perhaps articles of use or adornment, all traces have vanished. Their earthworks and mounds are being rapidly leveled by the plow of modern times, and the scholar of the future can only learn from books of their mysterious builders. In Mexico and farther south, we find the ruins of great cities. To the student of antiquity, these far surpass in interest the ruined cities of the Nile or Euphrates Valley. Babylon of old, with its walls, towers, and pleasure resorts, was indeed wonderful. In our own land, cities, if not ancient yet fallen in more picturesque ruin, reward the labors of the explorer. Uxmal, Copan, Palenque invite our attention. Here are hieroglyphics in abundance, but no Rosetta Stone supplies the key by whose aid a Champollion can unravel the mystery. The luxuriant vegetative growth of the tropics, with its fierce storms, is every year hastening the obliteration of these ruins, and we must improve the time well if we would learn from them what they have to say of the past. 
The Isles of the Pacific give evidence that long before the dawn of authentic history, man lived there. Indeed, as the islands which jam that ocean from their configuration and position seem to be but the elevated plateaus and mountain peaks of a continent that has gone down beneath the blue wave of the Pacific, so throughout Polynesia can be traced the fragmentary remains of a civilization, the greater portion of which has been completely buried by the waters of oblivion leaving only here and there a trace to reconstruct, if we can, the entire structure. The earliest remains of man are very similar in all lands. They consist of weapons of war and of the chase, implements of domestic use and articles of personal adornment. Few and simple as they are, they are capable of imparting useful information as to early times. By their aid, we become eyewitnesses of the daily life of primitive man. We learn that, Though lacking in almost everything we consider essential for comfort and happiness, yet they were actuated by much the same hopes and fears as the men of present age. The great burden of life was the same then as now. There was the same round of daily labor made necessary by the same ceaseless struggle for existence. Rude forts and warlike implements show there was the same encroachment of the strong on the weak as now. This is a wonderful age in many respects. In none, however, more wonderful than in the widespread diffusion of knowledge. The ordinary people now understand more of nature's secrets than the wise man of old. They are today interested in researchers that a former generation would have relegated to the scholar and the man of leisure. No department of knowledge is retained for the researches of a favored few. The farmer, the mechanic, and the man of business are alike interested in a knowledge of prehistoric times. The rude implements of the past appeal to the curiosity of all. We arise from a study of the past with clear ideas of man's destiny. Impressed with the great advancement in man's condition from the rude savagery of the drift to the enlightened civilization of today. What may we not hope the advancement will be during the countless ages we believe a beneficent providence has in store for his creature man? A history of the popular opinion of the antiquity of man is not only of interest, but should teach a lesson to all who think others are wrong because not holding the same views as they do. Hardly fifty years have passed since scientific men began to attribute to the human race an antiquity more remote than that assigned them by history and tradition. At first these views met with general opposition, much as did the theory of the present system of astronomy when it was first proclaimed. We laugh now at the ignorant fears and prejudices used to combat both. It was claimed that the Bible taught that man had lived on the globe scarcely 6,000 years. The Bible is the book to which the Anglo-Saxon mind clings with greatest reverence. The memories of childhood are associated with its pages, and its very appearance recalls the prayers of long ago. It is not strange, then, that the Christian world guards with jealous care against anything which may be thought to weaken the force of its statements. But it is human nature to go to extremes. And when we give our support to one way of thinking, we find it difficult to be patient with those of the contrary opinion. Now, the researches of some of the most eminent men and learned divines have amply shown that there are no data given in the scriptures on which to base an estimate as to the antiquity of man. Happily, the Christian mind no longer shrinks from the conclusions reached by the scientist, and indeed it is the contemplation of the stupendous periods of geological times, and the infinite greatness of the works of creation as disclosed by astronomy, 
but the extreme lowness of man's first condition as made evident by archaeology that lend new force to the words, What is man? And thou art mindful of him. The evidences on which we predicate an extreme antiquity for man are necessarily cumulative. It is not from one source alone that we obtain information, but from many. Eminent men in nearly every department of knowledge have lent their aid to the elucidation of the subject. It can only be understood by those who will fairly weigh the facts that modern discoveries have unrolled before their eyes. There are many who have not done this, and are consequently unable to project their mental vision so far back into the very night of time, as is now demanded for the beginning of man's first appearance on the earth. And indeed, so enormously has this period been extended, so far back does it require us to go, that even the most enlightened investigator may well recoil in dismay when he first perceives the almost infinite lapse of years that are required by his calculations since the creation of man. At this day, the scholar must be ready to explain the steps by which he reaches his conclusions not necessarily explaining the minutiae of his journey hither, but the main outlines of his course. This seems to call for a slight outline of geology. The animal and vegetable tribes which have come and gone upon the earth, following each other like the shadows of passing clouds on a summer's day, have left their remains in the rocks, which at that time were forming. A close investigation of these remains shows that they form the record book of nature wherein we are permitted to read somewhat of her secrets. This had long been a sealed book to man, but science, as we have seen, constantly extending her domain at length taught him the alphabet, and the geologist now unfolds the past of our world with a variety of detail, and a certainty of conclusion well calculated to inspire us with grateful admiration. It is no longer a question that many ages must have rolled away, during which our world was totally unfit for life of any kind, either animal or vegetable. The nebular theory of Laplace, as modified by the modern astronomers, so satisfactorily explains many of the phenomena of the solar system that it takes rank almost as a demonstrated fact. According to the terms of this theory, our Earth, now so dependent on the sun for light and warmth, was itself a glowing orb, and as a bright star radiated its light and heat into space. Grand conception, and probably true. It is now almost useless to speculate as to how many cycles of almost infinite years had begun and ended, before Earth's fading fires gave notice that they soon must expire in night. The stages through which the Earth passed in turn await the sun, save that there is no further beneficent luminary to give him light and heat. When time shall have quenched his fiery glow, death and night shall reign supreme, where now is life and light. Time is long, and nature never hurries. She builds for infinite years and wrecks not the time of building. The human mind is far too feeble to comprehend the duration of time that sped away and was gone ere the slowly falling temperature of the earth admitted the formation of a crust over her surface. When that came, the first great scene was closed. The star had expired. The planet rolled in her annual course around the still-glowing central sun. Now came the formative age of the world when the great continents were outlined. The atmosphere gradually freed itself from its weight of water vapor, the rains descended, and the ocean took form and contour. We are concerned only with the outlines of geology, not with its details. It is full of the most interesting facts, but is foreign to our present purpose. 
we will only say that there is a marked progression in the scale and importance of life forms. The lower forms of animals appeared first to be followed in time by the higher. It is true that some forms have survived through all the changes of geological time to the present. Yet, speaking generally, some forms of life are peculiar to each age, and the general phase of animal life is different with each period. They thus form epochs in the history of the world as read from the rocks. And though the beginning and ending of each age may blend by insensible gradations with that of the preceding and following, yet taken as a whole, we observe in each such singularities of form and structure as to give name to each particular age. In the fullness of time man appears, and it is our pleasant task to trace the evidence of his primitive state, his growth in culture, and his advancement made before the dawn of history. Our inquiry, then, is as to his prehistoric state. We use this term in the same sense as Dr. Wilson uses it, that is, to express the whole period disclosed to us by means of archaeological evidence, as distinguished from what is known throughout historical records. We cannot doubt but that this includes by far the largest portion of man's existence. The time embraced within historical records, though different in different portions of the world, is but a brief period in comparison to the duration of time since he first went forth to possess the earth. If we can make plain to our readers that man has lived in the world an extremely long time, going back indeed to a former geological age, that his first state was very low and rude, that he has risen to the present high estate by means of his own exertions, continued through long ages, and from this form a prophecy of a golden age to come in the yet distant future, we shall feel that we have not written in vain. Chapter 2 Early Geological Periods Necessity of a general acquaintance with the outlines of geology a time in which there was no life possible on the globe, length of this period, on the formation of rocks, the record imperfect, the three great periods in animal life on the globe, Paleozoic Age, animal and vegetable life of this period, the Mesozoic Age, animal and vegetable life of this period, advance noted, abundance of reptilian life, first appearance of birds, nature's methods of work, the Cenozoic Age, Geological Outline, Sketch of the Eocene Age, of the Miocene Age. What is sufficient proof of the presence of man? Discussion of the Thenay Flints, the Pliocene Age, Animal and Vegetable Life of this Age. Was man living during this age? Discussions of the subject, Summing up the Evidence. Conclusion for a clear understanding of questions relating to early man, a more or less extensive acquaintance with geology is required. This is by no means a difficult task to accomplish. What's so interesting as to understand at least the outlines of the history of life on the globe? To see how, following a definite plan, the vast continents have grown to their present size and form. To see how animal and vegetable life has evolved successively higher and higher forms to see where in this wondrous drama of creation, this strange unfolding of life, the first faint, indecisive traces of man's presence are to be found, to learn what great changes in climate, in geogeny, and in life had occurred before man's appearance. Let us pass in brief review the history of early geological periods. 
As we have already stated, there must have been a very long period of time during which no life was possible on the globe. Of this era we know but little, for we find no strata of rocks of an earlier date than we know life and its simplest forms to have existed. Still, we are not less confident of the existence of this era, and the mind can dimly comprehend the scene when a nearly shoreless ocean surged around the globe. As to the extent of time during which there was no life, we have no means of determining. That it was almost infinitely long is made apparent by the researches of eminent scholars of the cooling of lava. Toward the close of this extended period of time, faint traces of life appear. Not life as we are apt to think of it. No nodding flowers were kissed by the sunshine of this early time. The earliest forms of flowerless plants, such as seaweeds and in dry places, possibly lichens covering the rocks, were the highest forms of vegetable life. Animal life, if present, for the fact is denied by some, occurs in the very lowest form, merely structureless bodies with no especial organs of sense or nutrition, and their notion consisting simply in protruding and withdrawing hair-like processes. Such was the beginning of life. This vast period of time which includes the beginning is known among geologists as Archean time. From the close of this age, the history of life properly commences. It might be well to explain the means which the geologist uses to interpret the history of the globe. It is now understood that the forces of nature have always produced the same results as they do now. From the very earliest times to the present, rocks have been forming. There were conditions where favorable, great beds of limestone, formed from shells and corals ground up by the action of sea. In other places, massive beds of sandstone or of sand, afterward consolidated into sandstone, were depositing. On the land surface, in places, great beds of vegetable debris were being converted into coal. Now we can easily see how the remains of organic bodies growing at the time of the formation of these beds should be preserved in a fossil form. Limestone rocks are thickly studded in places with all sorts of marine formations. Coal fields reveal wonders of early vegetative growth. From sandstone rocks and shaley beds, we learn strange stories of animal life at the time they were forming. From a careful study of these remains, together with the formation in which they occur, not only in one locality but all over the earth, geologists have gradually unfolded the history of life on the globe. It is admitted that, at best, our knowledge in that direction is fragmentary. This arises from errors in observation as well as that fossil formations are rare, or at least localities where they are known to exist are but few. So our knowledge of the past is as if we were examining some record from which pages, chapters, and even volumes have been extracted. In consequence of this imperfect record, we cannot, as yet, trace a gradual successive growth from the low forms of animal and plant life that characterize the closing period of Archean time to the highly organized types of the present. The record suddenly ceases, and when we again pick up the thread, we are surrounded by more advanced types, higher forms of life. Though we may hope that future discoveries will do much toward completing the records, we cannot hope that they will ever really be perfected. So from our present standpoint, the history of life on the globe falls naturally into three great divisions. This is not only true of one country, but of all. This is no more than we might expect when we reflect that nature's laws are universal in their action, and that the world as a whole has been subjected to the same set of changes. 
The period following on after Archean time is called, by geologists, Paleozoic time. During the long course of time embraced in this age, the forms of life present wide differences from those of existing time. This period produced the great beds of coal we use today. But the vegetation of the coal period would present strange features to our eyes. The vegetation commenced with the lowest orders of flowerless plants, such as seaweeds. But before it was brought to a close, there was a wonderful variety and richness of plants of the flowerless, or cryptogamic, division. In some of the warmest portions of the globe, we have today tree ferns growing four or five feet high. During the closing part of the Paleozoic time, there were growing all over the temperate zone great tree ferns, 30 feet or so in height. Some varieties of rushes in our marshes, a foot or two in height, had representatives of the marshes of the coal period standing 30 feet high and having woody trunks. Near the close of the Paleozoic time, vegetation assumed a higher form of life. Flowering plants are represented, pines were growing in the coal measures. In animal life, a similar advance is noted. The class of animals having no backbone or invertebrate animals were largely represented. But toward the close of the Paleozoic time, we meet with representatives of the backbone family. The waters swarmed with fishes. Besides these, there were amphibians and reptiles in the closing portions. Thus we see what a great advance was made in life during this period. The forms of life during the early stages of this age were inferior in this. Also, that they were all water species. But before it closes, we have a rich and varied terrestrial vegetation, and also air-breathing animals. The class Mammalia, to which man belongs, had no representative on Earth during the extended Paleozoic time. We can easily see from the foregoing how appropriately this period has been named that of old life forms. In imagination, we can recall a scene of this old age. The air is sultry and full of vapors. The soil seems hot and steaming. This is a veritable forest, but we see none of the beautiful flowers which we associate with tropical vegetation today. In the branches of the graceful tree ferns, we will look in vain for birds. They were yet far in the future. Neither were there any of the higher orders of animals present. Not a single representative of the great class of mammals enlivened the depths of the forest. There were fishes in the waters, but not the fishes of today. Some true reptiles and amphibians disported themselves in swampy jungles, but they were unimportant. Almost the only sound to break the stillness was the hum of marsh-loving insects, the whistling of the wind and the roar of the tempests, which we may well believe raged with the more than tropic severity of the present. The time at last came for the dawning of a new era. Vast changes have been taking place in the geography of both continents. The region to the southwest of the Green Mountains was upturned. The Allegheny Mountains were formed, and the region east of the Mississippi River became part of the stable land of the continent. In Europe, nearly as great changes occurred. The conditions of life must have been greatly modified by these geographical changes. The life forms bear testimony to this changed condition. Old forms die away and are succeeded by those approaching more nearly our own times. The name of this period is the Mesozoic time, or the period of middle life forms. It is instructive to notice the steady advance in the type of life, both animal and vegetable. The abundant flowerless vegetation of the coal formation of the preceding epoch dwindles away. But the flowering trees increase in number and importance until 
In the closing period of Mesozoic time, we have trees with deciduous leaves. A great many of our forest trees had representatives in the forest of that epoch. Palms and species like the big tree of California were growing side by side with species akin to our own common trees. But in the animal world, there were many strange forms. This was the age of reptiles. They domineered on the land, in the air, and in the sea. On the land, there stalked huge reptiles 50 and 60 feet long, and when standing erect, at least 30 feet high. Some of these huge creatures were carnivorous, living on other animals. Others fed on the foliage of trees. In the air, huge reptilian bats, veritable flying dragons with a spread of wings from 10 to 20 feet, disported themselves. In the sea there swam great reptilian whales, seals, and walruses. There was a marvelous abundance of reptilian life. At the present day there are not more than six species of reptiles in the whole world having a length over 15 feet, and not more than 18 species exceeding 10 feet in length. But from one limited locality representing but one era of this age in England, there have been discovered four or five species of carnivorous reptiles 20 to 50 feet long, 10 or 12 species of crocodiles, lizards, and swimming reptiles from 10 to 60 feet long, besides multitudes of great flying reptiles and turtles. Doubtless, similar scenes of animal life were everywhere represented. Birds made their first appearance during the Mesozoic time, and here we obtain a clear view of nature's methods of work. There is no longer a doubt but that the first birds were simply modified reptiles. The first bird had a long jointed tail and a bill well supplied and formidable teeth. It was during this period that the first representative of the class Mammalia, to which man belongs, appears. It is in the rocks of this era that we meet with remains of marsupials, the order to which opossums belong. This is the lowest of the mammalian class. To this class, the mammalia belong the most highly organized animals. They have been the ruling animals since the close of the Mesozoic time. We must now watch their development with especial care, for this brief review, as far as it has gone, has shown a steady and gradual progress in life forms, the lower invariable preceding the higher. We therefore feel that it will be vain to seek for any trace of man until we find undoubted proofs of the existence of all the forms of animals below him. The last great division of time is called the Cenozoic. This means new life forms. In this age, the forms of life are much nearer our own. As it was some time during this epoch when man makes his appearance, we deem it best to go into more detail and give the subdivisions of this period. It has been amply sufficient to give simply the outlines of other periods. Note. When we talk of first appearance, we mean the discovery of remains. All who believe in the doctrine of evolution know that the class Mammalia must have appeared early in Paleozoic times. Thus, Mr. Wallace says, bats and whales, strange modifications of mammals, appear perfectly well developed in the Eocene. What countless ages back must we go for the origin of these groups? The whales from some ancestral carnivorous animal, the bats from the insectivora, and even then we have to seek for the common origin of these groups at far earlier periods, so that on the lowest estimate we must place the origin of the mammalia very far back in Paleozoic times. In order to fix more clearly the sequence of life, we will give an outline showing the periods we have reviewed, and also the subdivisions of the Cenozoic time, 
which we are now to examine with more care. Outline the life, archaean time, the beginning, includes the long lapse of time when the globe could not support life, but towards its close, faint traces of life, both animal and vegetable, appeared. Paleozoic time, the period of old life forms, forests of flowerless trees, but pines grew in the coal measures, animal life largely invertebrate, but amphibians and reptiles along with the vertebrates appeared at the close. Mesozoic time, the period of middle life forms, flowering trees increasing in number and importance, deciduous trees make their appearance, animal life largely reptilian, the class mammalia represented by marsupials, and the last Cenozoic time, tertiary or age of mammals, Eocene, Miocene, Pliocene, Quaternary or age of man, glacial or Pleistocene, and recent. At the close of the Mesozoic time, great elevations of land took place in both America and Europe, especially in the northern portions. This could not fail to have a great effect on life, both animals and vegetable. During the Eocene or first division of the Tertiary Age, we have simply to note the steady progress of life. There were forests of species of oaks, poplars, maples, hickories, and other common trees, and others now found only in tropical regions. Palm trees were growing in the upper Missouri region of the United States, and England was decidedly a land of palms, as no less than 13 species are known to have been growing there. Cypresses, yews, and pines grace the scene. Our special interest centers, however, in the mammals of this epoch. In the preceding epoch, marsupials only were represented, but in beds of the middle and closing portions of the Eocene period, we meet with a sudden increase of mammalian life. Whale-like animals were especially abundant in the seas, and on our western plains were animals like the tapirs of India, and rhinoceros-like animals as large as elephants, but having no trunks, and diminutive little animals not larger than foxes, from which have come our horses. Europe also had a varied mammalian fauna. There were numerous hog-like animals, animals like the tapirs of tropical Asia and America, wandered in the forests and on the banks of the rivers. Herds of horse-like animals about the size of Shetland ponies fed on the meadows. Animals that chew the cud were present, or at least had near representatives. Among the flesh-eating animals were creatures resembling foxes, wolverines, and hyenas. This shows what a great advance had been made. But besides all these, we are here represented with representatives of the order of quadrumana, or four-handed animals. Several genera of lemurs are founded in both America and Europe. Now the quadrumana are the order below man. Therefore it seems that in the Eocene period all the forms of life below man are represented. The time seems to be at hand when we can look with some confidence for traces of the presence of man himself. We must therefore be more cautious in our investigations. The epoch following on after the Eocene is designated as the Miocene. We must remember that, though recent in a geological sense, yet it is immensely remote when measured by the standard of years. We must inquire into all the surroundings of this faraway time. The geographical features must have been widely different from the present. In the first place, the elevation of land to the north must have been sufficient to have connected the land areas of the northern hemisphere, North America, with Asia, and Greenland. 
and this latter country must have been united with Iceland, and through the British Islands with Europe. But to compensate for this land mass to the north, large portions of Central and Southern Europe were beneath the waves. The proof of this extended mass of land is to be found in the wide distribution of similar animals and plants in the Miocene time. All the chief botanists are agreed that the North Polar region was the center from which plants peculiar to the Eocene and Miocene epochs spread into both Europe and America. We may mention that the famous big trees of California are simply remnants of a widespread growth of these trees in Miocene times. They can be found in a fossil state at various places in British America, in Greenland, and in Europe. They are supposed to have originated somewhere in the north and spread by these land connections we have mentioned into both Europe and America. But this is not the only tree that grew in the Miocene forests of both continents. The magnolia, tulip tree, and swamp cypress are other instances. Eleven species growing in the Rocky Mountain regions in Eocene times found their way to Europe in the Miocene times, driving before them the plants of a tropical growth that had hitherto flourished in England. Now this implies land connection between the two continents. Furthermore, animals both large and small are found common to the two countries. The climate over what is now the North Temperate Zone, and even further north, must have been delightful. There is ample testimony to this effect in the rich vegetative remains over wide areas. In Spitsbergen, within 12 degrees of the pole, where now a dwarf willow and a few herbaceous plants form the only vegetation, and the ground is most of the time covered with snow and ice, there were growing in Miocene times no less than 95 species of trees, including yews, hazels, elders, beech, elms, and others. But it is in the Miocene forests of the continent of Europe where we meet with evidence of a singularly mild climate. There were at least 11 species of palms growing in Switzerland, and one variety of them grew as far north as northern Germany. We cannot give a list of all the species. On the one hand, there were elms, willows, poplars, oaks, and beeches, thus far similar to the forest growth of temperate regions. Mingled with these were forests of trees like the tulip tree, swamp cypress, and liquid amber or sweet gum of the southern part of the United States, plants whose home is in the warm and moist regions of the earth. But there were also representatives of the tropical regions, such as fig trees, cinnamon trees, and camphor trees. These are found growing now in the tropical countries. Fruit trees of the cherry, plum, and almond species were also to be seen. Professor here points out how all this should convince us that a large part of Europe in the Miocene age possessed a climate not unlike that of the Madeira, or Canary Islands of today. He calls a special attention to the fact that these trees were nearly all of evergreen species, and that a severe winter would destroy them. He finds 131 species of the temperate zone, species that can stand a modern amount of cold but not very hot and dry climates. He finds 85 species of tropical plants that could not possibly live where the winters are severe. Mingled with these were nearly 300 species whose natural home is in the warm, temperate portions of the earth. The only way you can explain this motley assemblage of trees is to suppose that in what is now Europe was a climate free from extremes, allowing the trees to put forth flowers and fruits all the year round. Reminding us, says Professor here, of these fortunate zones where nature never goes to rest. 
Let us now inquire as to the animals that roamed through these great forests we have been describing. The Miocene period extended over long laps of time, and considerable change took place among the animals belonging to the different parts of this age. We will only give a general outline for the whole period. The marsupials lingered along into the early stages of this period, and then disappeared from Europe. The rhinoceros were present in the early stages and continued through the entire age. We meet in this period animals of the elephant kind, two species, the mastodon and the dinotherium. Antelopes and gazelles wandered in vast troops over the plains of Hungary, Spain, and southern France. Carnivorous animals resembling tigers and hyenas found abundance of animal food. Herds of horse-like animals fed on the rich herbage of the meadows. The birds were largely represented. In the woods were to be seen flocks of gaily feathered parakeets and trogons. On the plains, secretary birds hunted the serpents and reptiles which furnished them food, and eagles were on the watch for their prey. Cranes waited in the rivers for fish. Geese, herons, and pheasants must have been abundant. Our main interest centers in the order Quadramana. We must remember that this order appeared in the Eocene. Several species were present in the Miocene. They wandered in the forests of France, Switzerland, Germany, and Italy, and doubtless found abundant food in the figs and breadfruit, walnuts, almonds, dates, and other nuts growing there. One of the most important is regarded as belonging to the same genus as the gibbons. This is the genus which has been sometimes regarded as making a nearer approach to man than any other monkey. Others, however, considered it as belonging to the extinct family. In addition to this species, there were at least three other species. Thus, there was no absence of simian life in the Miocene. From the sketch we have thus far drawn of the Miocene age, it seems to have been a very favorable one in every respect. One writer affirms that the world never experienced a more beautiful period. And indeed, it seems as if the facts bear out this statement. A genial, temperate climate was the rule, even to the high northern latitudes. We need not doubt but that there were grassy plains, wooded slopes, and rolling rivers. Was man present to take advantage of all these favorable surroundings? Did he wander through the evergreen forests and hunt the deer, antelope, and hogs, the hipparians, and mastodons, and dinotheries? then so numerous. We know of no inherent improbability of his existence at this time. An ape belonging to a highly organized genius was then living in Europe. Every condition considered necessary for the primeval Garden of Eden was then satisfied. Let us stop for a minute and examine the nature of the evidence considered sufficient to prove the presence of man during any of the past geological ages. Should we be so fortunate as to find portions of the bones of the human skeleton in a geological formation in such positions that they could not possibly have been introduced there since the deposition of the containing bed? It would of course prove that man was at least as old as the formation itself. But it happens that human remains in beds of a previous geological age are very rare. Indeed, human remains in formations of the Pleistocene age, during which we have ample testimony as we shall see, of the presence of man are very rare. The cases in which there can be no doubt can be reckoned on the fingers. The explanation of this state of things is not at all difficult, for it is only under very rare circumstances that portions of the bones of animals even larger than man are preserved to us in any geological strata. Vast numbers die and vanish away without leaving a trace behind them for every fragmentary bone we recover. 
In the case of man, we must remember that in previous eras he was present in very small numbers. That, owing to his intelligence, he would not be as liable to be drowned and swept away, and so mingle his remains with beds of river detritus then forming, as were animals. Mr. Lyle has made some remarks on the draining of the Harlem Lake by the government of Holland in 1853, which shows that even favorable circumstances do not always preserve remains for future inspection. Though called the lake, this body of water was an arm of the sea, covering about 45,000 acres. The population which had lived on the shores of the lake was between 30 and 40,000 souls. There had been many a shipwreck and many a naval fight on those waters, and hundreds of Dutch and Spanish soldiers and sailors had met there with their watery grave. Yet not a solitary portion of the human skeleton was to be found in its bed. Thus we see that, in the majority of cases, we must rely on other evidence in the presence of human bones to prove the existence of man in the geological periods of the past. In the case of the Harlem Lake, again, there was found the wreck of one or two vessels and some ancient armor. So had it been a disputed point whether man was a denizen of this planet at the time when the area in question was covered by water, it would have been settled beyond a doubt by these relics of his industry, even though portions of the human frame itself were entirely wanting. And in reality, proofs of this nature are just as satisfactory as it would be to discover human bones. If on a desert island we find arrowheads, javelins, a place where there had been a fire, split bones, and other debris of a feast, we are as much justified in asserting that man had been there, as we would be had we seen him with our own eyes. In the same manner, if we detect in any strata of the past any undoubted products of human industry, such as weapons or implements and ornaments, in such position that we know they could not have been deposited there since the formation of the bed itself, we have no hesitancy in asserting that man himself is of the same antiquity as the strata containing the implements. In the great majority of cases, this is the only kind of evidence possible to advance. It is now well known that the first stage in the culture of any people is what is called the Stone Age. That is to say, their weapons and implements were made from stone, or at least the majority of them were. We will discuss on another page this point, and also the grounds leading us to infer that many of the extremely rude forms are really the work of man. Let us now return to the Miocene Age, in which we are to seek for the presence of man. In 1867, a French geologist by the name of Bourgeois, who had been searching some beds of the Miocene Age near Thenay, France, found a number of flints of such a peculiar shape that he concluded they could only be explained by supposing that man formed them. In this case, there is no question as to the age of the stratum containing the flints. All geologists are agreed that it is of the Miocene Age. The question then is, whether the flints were artificially cut or not. On this question, there has been a great division of opinion, and we cannot do better than to examine and see where the principal scientific men stand on this point. In 1872, at the Scientific Congress in Brussels, this question was referred to a committee composed of the most competent men from the different countries of Europe. We are sorry to say that after a thorough consideration of them, the judges were unable to agree. Some accepted them, Others rejected them, and still others were undecided. Some of the latter have since become convinced by recent discoveries. 
Since this discovery, similar specimens have been described as having been found in Portugal and from another locality in France. Some men of the highest authority accept these flints as proving the presence of man in Miocene times. This is supported by such men as Quatrefages, Hammy, Mortillet, Capellini. Note, Professor Winchell says, Quatrefages does not now consider the proof decisive. He cites, as agreeing with him, M.M. Coteau, Evans, and I believe most of the members who have not publicly pronounced themselves. These are all known to be competent and careful geologists. Another class does not think the evidence strong enough to declare these flints of human origin, and so do not think it proved that man lived in Europe in Miocene times, but do believe that we will eventually find proofs of his existence during that era in the warm and tropical regions of the globe. This is the view of such men as Lubbock, Evans, Huxley, and Winchell. Still others say that during the vast lapse of years since Miocene times, all the species of land mammals then alive have perished their place being taken by other species, and therefore it is incredible that man, the most highly specialized of all animals, should have survived. And hence, if these thinne flints are really artificial in their origin, it is more reasonable to suppose that they were cut by one of the higher apes than living in France, than by man. This is the view of Professor Dawkins and Professor Gaudry. As to the last view, it is surely but reasonable to suppose with quatrefages that the superior intelligence of man would serve to protect him from the operation of causes that would affect the extinction of lower animals. Hence, unless some evidence be produced to show that species of apes are known to make rude stone implements, or some evidence that they did this in the past ages, we must believe, with Gecki and others, that these flints prove that Miocene man lived in France, unless indeed we refuse to believe that they are all artificial. It also seems to us that those who hold to the view that man was living in other parts of the world as Asia during the Miocene age ought readily to admit that a few wandering bands might penetrate into Europe. Note, Professor Winchell remarks that though some savage races might have been living in tropical lands during the Miocene, still the oldest skull and jaws obtainable in Europe are of a higher type than these. The climate was tropical, there was an abundance of animal life, and if man was living anywhere, it is very reasonable to suppose that, at some epoch during the course of the Miocene age, he would have found his way to Europe, unless shut off by the sea. It therefore seems to us that the presence of these cut flints is conclusive of the presence of man in Europe during the Miocene Age. At the same time, we cannot affirm that this is the conclusion of the scientific world. They seem to have heeded the remark of quatrefages that in such a matter there is no great urgency and are waiting for further discoveries. Thus far in our review we have noticed the steady progress in the forms of the life. In the Miocene Age we have seen all the types of life below man present and some indications of the presence of man himself. We must now learn what we can of the Pliocene Age, the last division of the Tertiary Age. The Pliocene Age need not detain us long. Considerable changes in the geography of both Europe and America were going forward during the Miocene Age, and the result was quite a change in climate. There was a steady elevation of the Pacific coast region of America and as a consequence a period of great volcanic outbursts in California and Oregon. At the same time, the bridge connecting Asia and America was severed. In Europe, 
The Mediterranean area was elevated, but the land connecting Greenland with Europe sank, allowing the cold waters of the Arctic to communicate with both the North Sea and the Atlantic. England at that time forming part of the Great Peninsula, extending north and west from Europe. The climate during the Pliocene Age was cooler than that of the Miocene. This is marked in the vegetation of that period. The palms and the cinnamon trees, which in Miocene times grew in Germany, flourished no farther north than Italy during the Pliocene. Count de Saporta, who made special researches in the flora of this period, found the remains of a forest growth buried under the lava on the side of a mountain in Cantal, France, at an elevation of about 4,000 feet above the level of the sea. This consisted principally of pines. This shows that probably all northern Europe was covered with somber forests of pine. In the same section, he found, buried under volcanic ash, a vegetation consisting mostly of deciduous trees. Maples, alders, poplars, willows, elms, and ashes. As this was growing at the height of about 2,300 feet in Cantal, France, it probably represents the vegetation of Brittany and northern Germany. Finally, the vegetation of central and southern France, as well as northern Italy, was intermediate in character between the luxuriant evergreen forests of the Miocene Age and that's now growing there. The tropical character of the vegetation was evidently passing away. The climate over a large part of Europe was now temperate, though probably warmer than at present. In the mammalia, we have to notice the disappearance of some species and the arrival and spread of some others. The apes living as far north as Germany in the Miocene Age were restricted to southern France and Italy in the Pliocene, and at its close vanished altogether from Europe. The first living species of mammals is found in the remains of the hippopotamus that frequented the rivers of Pliocene times. The mastodon of Miocene times was still to be seen, but along with it was a species of true elephants. The Haparian survived in this epoch, but the horse also makes its appearance. Great quantities of deer roamed over the land, and as might be expected, were they so abundant, the carnivorous animals allied to the bears and wolves, panthers, lynxes, and tigers were also to be found. At night, says Mr. Dawkins, the Pliocene forest of central France echoed with the weird laughter of the hyena. The gradual lowering of the climate is also shown by the remains of the mollusks deposited in beds of marine or sea formation during different eras of this age. It is found that the earlier the bed, the more southern mollusks are found in it. This shows us that all through the Pliocene age, the waters of the seas surrounding England were gradually growing cooler thus compelling the retreat of those mollusks fitted only for a warm climate, and allowing a gradual increase in those species fitted for cold or northern latitudes. We also find in deposits made near the close of Pliocene times, numbers of stone which show all evidence of having been borne thither by means of ice. So we may conclude that rafts of ice came floating down the North Sea during the close of the Pliocene age. Still, during the entire length of the Pliocene Age, Europe certainly offered an inviting home for man. Not only were the higher orders of animals present, but at least one living species was known. We find more proofs of his presence, but whether they are sufficient to convince us that man really lived during that epoch is to be seen. Professor Whitney has brought to the attention of the scientific world what he considers ample evidence of the presence of Pliocene man in California. We reserve this for discussion in another place. 
We will only remark at present that the evidence in this case is regarded as sufficient by some of the best American scholars. We simply mention them here so that they may be borne in mind when we see what evidence Europe has to offer on this point. In 1863, M. Desnoyer of France discovered in a stratum which he considered Pliocene some bones of elephants and other animals cut and scratched in such a manner that he considered these cuts to be the work of man. As showing how cautious geologists are of accepting such conclusions, we mention this case. There was found in the same bed the remains of an extinct beaver. The question was at once raised whether rodents by gnawing these bones could not have produced the cuts in question. Sir Charles Lyell, by actual experiments in the zoological gardens in London, soon showed that this was probably the fact. Yet Sir John Lubbock thinks it quite likely some of them were of human origin. Subsequently, however, Mr. Bourgeois discovered in the same bed worked flints, about the human origin of which there seems to be no doubt, but a mere careful study of the formation in which they occur has raised questions as to its age. Though usually held to be Pliocene, some careful observers consider it to be of a later age. Geologists cannot be accused of rashly accepting statements as to the antiquity of man. In 1867, there was discovered in northern Italy a human skull in a railway cutting at the depth of nearly 50 feet. This stratum contains remains of several Pliocene animals. This is held to prove the existence of Pliocene man by several eminent observers. Amongst others, Professor Kochi of Italy and Forsyth Major. But in this case, Mr. Dawkins contends that it was not found under such conditions as render it certain that the stratum had been undisturbed, and so does not prove to a certainty that it was of the same age as the stratum. And Mr. Geeky thinks that the stratum itself is of a later age than the Pliocene. It is but right that geologists should thus carefully scan all the evidence produced. In 1876, Professor Capolini discovered in a Pliocene deposit in Italy the bones of a whale, which were so marked with cuts and incisions that he thought the only explanation was to say that they had been cut by men. In this case, there is no dispute as to the age of the stratum. Neither is there much doubt but that the cuts are the work of man. It is quite true that Mr. Evans has suggested that they may be the work of fishes, and this he has followed by Professor Winchell. But there appears to be little ground for such belief because the cuts are all on the outside faces of rib bones and the outer faces of the backbones, from the position occupied by the remaining portions of the skeleton. Professor Capolini is sure that the animal had run aground and in that condition was discovered and killed by men, who then, by means of flint knives, cut away such portions of food as they wished. It must have been lying on its side since the cuts were all made on bones of the right. It is not probable that fishes would have been apt to choose the outside faces of the ribs on the right side for their meals. These cut bones have been carefully examined by many competent men, who have agreed with Capolini that they are the work of men. Mr. Dawkins thinks the cuts were artificial, but he says it is not, however, to my mind satisfactorily shown that these were obtained from undisturbed strata. Now these bones have been found in several localities, always in Pliocene deposits, which form the shores of the Pliocene Sea. Knowing how carefully geologists inquire into all the surroundings of a find, surely if Capolini and others are the competent men they are admitted to be, they would have informed us long ago if they were not found in undisturbed strata. 
Mr. Dawkins also objects because fragments of pottery were found in the strata. Pottery, says he, was unknown in the Pleistocene age, and therefore is unlikely to have been found in the Pliocene. Mr. Geeky says this objection is founded on a mistake, as Professor Capolini told him the pottery was found lying on the surface, and was never for a moment imagined by him as belonging to the same age as the cut bones. There is also the objection that inasmuch as all the mammals then alive except one have perished, it is more than likely that had man been in existence then, he too would have disappeared. We considered this point fully when speculating as to the presence of man in the Miocene, so we have nothing further to offer. We might, however, suggest that if the hippopotamus amongst mammals could survive all the changing times since the Pliocene, as it has done, it seems no more than fair to admit equal power of endurance to the human species. The position, then, of the scientific world as to the Pliocene Age of Man is, on the whole, more decided in its favor than for the Miocene Age. Quite a number of eminent scholars whose conclusions are worthy of all respect unhesitatingly affirm the existence of Pliocene Man in Europe. Others are not quite ready to admit his existence in Europe, but do think he was in existence elsewhere. Still others, with all due respect for the discoveries of Capolini, think it more prudent to await further discoveries. The reader, who has followed us through this brief outline of the past, can join which of the classes he will, and be sure of finding himself in good company. This completes our review of past geological ages. With the termination of the Pliocene Age, we find ourselves on firmer ground. We only wish to call attention once more to the gradual unfolding of life. We see that the rule has been that everywhere the lower forms of life precede the higher. In the plant world, flowerless plants precede the flowering ones. The coal we burn today is mainly the remains of the wonderful growth of the flowerless vegetation of the Paleozoic Age. When flowering plants appear, it is the lower forms of them at first. It was long ages before trees with deciduous leaves appeared. The growth of animal life is equally instructive. First, invertebrate life, then the lowest forms of vertebrate life. The fishes are followed by amphibians, then reptiles, then birds. The first mammal to appear was the lowest organized of all, the marsupials. And we have seen the sudden increase of mammalian life in tertiary times. We notice in all the divisions of life a beginning, a culmination, and a decline. There's never been such a growth of flowerless plants as in the Paleozoic. And flowering plants probably culminated in the Miocene. The same rule holds good for the animal world also. As man is the most highly organized of all the animals, we cannot hope to find any evidence of his presence until we find proofs of the presence of all the lower types of life. Of course, future discoveries may change our knowledge when the series is complete. But from our present standpoint, he could not have lived before the Miocene age, and we have seen how faint and indecisive are the proofs of his presence even then. But should it finally be proved beyond all dispute that man did live in the Miocene age, we must observe that this is but a small portion, but a minute fraction of the great lapse of time since life appeared on the globe. We are a creation of but yesterday, even granting all that the most enthusiastic believer in the antiquity of man can claim. Chapter 3 Men of the River Drift Beginning of the Glacial Age, Interglacial Age, Man Living in Europe During This Age, Map of Europe, Proof of Former Elevation of Land, The Animals Living in Europe During This Age, 
conclusions drawn from these different animals. The vegetation of this period, different climactic conditions of Europe during the glacial age, proofs of a glacial age, extent of the glacial age, evidence of a warm interglacial age, the primitive state of man, early English civilization, views of Horace, primitive man destitute of metals, order in which different materials were used by man for weapons, evidence from the river Somme, history of Boucher, de Perthes, investigations, discussion of the subject, antiquity of these remains, improvement during Paleolithic age, description of the flint implements, other countries where these implements are found. What race of men were these tribes? The Kanstadt race, Mr. Dawkins' views. When did they first appear in Europe? The authorities on this question. Conclusion The tertiary age, with its wonderful wealth of animal and plant life, gradually drew to its close. In our outline, we have named the period that next ensued the Glacial Age. This was sufficiently exact for our purpose then, but we must remember this is the name for a long series of years. During this period, great changes in climate occurred. At its commencement, a genial temperate climate prevailed throughout Europe. And this, as we know, was preceded during the Miocene Age by a warm tropical one. This succession then shows us that for some reason or other, the climate had been gradually growing colder. This change went forward uninterruptedly. Doubtless, very gradually, from century to century, the seasons grew more and more severe, until finally, the summer sun no longer cleared the mountains of the winter's snow. This was the beginning of the glacial age proper. The best authorities also suppose that the rain of snow and ice was broken by at least one return, possibly more, of genial climate, when animals and plants from the south again visited the countries of northern Europe only, however, to be once more driven forth by a return of Arctic cold. But finally, before the increasing warmth of a genial climate, the glaciers vanished, not to return again, and the glacial age became merged in that of the present. It is no longer a question that man lived in Europe during the largest portion of this age, if not from the beginning. It is necessary, then, to come to a clear understanding of the successive stages of this entire age, and to trace the wonderful cycles of climate. A strange mutation of heat and cold, which must have exerted a powerful influence on the life both animal and vegetable of the period. And see when we first find decisive proofs of man's presence, and learn what we can of his condition. The map of Europe at the close of Pliocene times and the commencement of the glacial age is of interest to us in several ways. From this it will be seen that it was considerably more elevated than at present. As this is no fancy sketch but is based on facts, it is well to outline them. Without the aid of man, land animals cannot possibly pass from the mainland of a continent to an island lying some distance off the shore. But it is well known that animals like the rhinoceros and several others wandered as well over the surface of the British islands as on the adjacent coast of Europe. We are therefore compelled to assume that at that time the English Channel and the Irish Sea were not in existence. This necessitates an elevation of at least 400 feet, which would also lay bare a large portion of the North Sea. In proof of this latter statement is the fact that at a distance from land in the North Sea, fishermen at the present day frequently dredge up bones and teeth of animals that then roamed in Europe. 
While there is no necessity for supposing an elevation greater than that required to lay bare a passage for animals back and forth, yet soundings undertaken by the British government have established the fact that the ocean deepens very gradually away from the shores of the mainland until a depth of 600 feet is reached, when the shore falls away very suddenly. This is supposed to be the sea coast of that time. The English Channel would then have existed as the Valley of the Seine, and the Rhine have prolonged its flow over the present bed of the North Sea. As the land stood at this height through a large portion of the glacial age, it is not at all unreasonable to suppose that primitive tribes hunted back and forth along these valleys, and so doubtless many convincing proofs of their presence at that early day lie buried underneath the waves of the sea. In like manner, at the south, we know that elephants, lions, and hyenas passed freely from Africa to Spain, Italy, and the island of Crete, and consequently the Mediterranean Sea must have been bridged in one or two places at least. The change from Pliocene times to early glacial was so gradual that quite a number of animals lived on from one to the other, and as we have already stated, one of these species has even survived to our own times. But we note the arrival in Europe of a great number of new animals, and the diversity of species seems at first an inexplicable riddle. Note, the majority of the Pliocene animals disappeared from Europe at the close of the period in question. This includes such animals as the Mastodon, Hipparion, and many kinds of deer. Gekki's Prehistoric Europe, page 334. The following animals survived into the glacial age, and some even into interglacial periods. African hippopotamus still living, saber-toothed lion, bear of Auvergne, big-nosed rhinoceros, Etruscan rhinoceros, Sedgwick's deer, deer of Polagne, and southern elephant. Prehistoric Europe, page 95. The key, however, is to be found in the great climactic changes, which we have already mentioned as occurring during this age. On the one hand, we find such animals as the musk sheep, reindeer, and the arctic fox, animals whose natural home is in high northern latitudes where snow and ice prevail most of the year. Yet during this age they lived in southern France and Italy, which must have then had a far different climate than at present. Were we to confine our attention to these alone, we would be convinced that the climate of Europe at that time was arctic in its severity. But side by side with the remains of these animals are found others which imply altogether different climate. The hippopotamus, now frequenting the rivers of Africa, during that period roamed as far north as Yorkshire, England. This animal could not live in a country where the cold was severe enough to form ice on the rivers. The remains of a number of other animals are found whose natural home is in the warm regions of the earth. These two groups of animals, one from north and one from the south, show how varied was the climate of Europe during the glacial age. Note, the northern animals include the following, alpine hare, musk sheep, glutton, reindeer, arctic fox, lemming, tailless hare, marmot, sermophile, ibex, snowy vole, and chamois. And another note, the following animals are given as southern species. Hippopotamus, African elephant, spotted hyena, striped hyena, serval, kaffir cat, lion, leopard. In addition to the above, there was also four or five species of elephants and three species of rhinoceros, which have since become extinct. 
In addition to these, there was also a large number of animals whose home is in the temperate regions of the earth, animals that thrive in neither extremes of heat or cold. This includes a great many animals of the deer kind, several varieties of bears and horses, in fact, the majority of those with which we are acquainted. Note, it is scarcely necessary to give a list of these animals. Professor Dawkins enumerates 33 species. The following are some of the most important. Urus, bison, horse, stag, roe, beaver, rabbit, otter, weasel, marten, wildcat, fox, wolf, wild boar, brown bear, grizzly bear. Now, what conclusion follows from this assemblage of animals? Many theories have been put forward in explanation. It has been suggested that Europe at that time had a climate not unlike that of some portions of the earth at present. That is, a long and severe winter was followed by a short but warm summer. During the winter, reindeer and other northern animals would press from the north in search of food, but would retire on the approach of spring when their feeding grounds would in turn be occupied by bisons and animals of a southern habitat. In confirmation of this view, it is pointed out that a vast collection of bones from the bottom of a sinkhole or pond in Derbyshire, England, conclusively show that in the summertime it was visited by bisons with their calves, and in winter by reindeer. This theory is open to a great many objections. As is well known, some animals make quite extensive migrations annually, but we can scarcely believe that heavy, unwieldy animals like the hippopotamus were then such industrious travelers as to wander every year from Italy to northern England and return. But the very ground on which this theory rests, that of strongly contrasted summers and winters, could not be true of Europe or the western portions of it, owing to the presence of the Atlantic Ocean, and the influence which it inevitably exerts on the climate. We see, then, that the presence of these different animals can be explained only by the supposing great secular changes in climate. Let us see if we can strengthen this view by an appeal to the vegetation of this period. We have seen how important a guide as to climate were the remains of the vegetation of the early times. We therefore turn with more confidence to such discoveries as will tell us of the flora of this age. But there are many reasons why remains of plant growth should be few. As we shall soon learn, this was a period of flooded rivers, and in the gravels and loams thus formed is found our principal source of information as to the life of the age. But such a rush of waters would form gravelly banks or great beds of loam, and would sweep away any plants which might be washed into its floods far out to sea. Or if by chance they should become buried in such gravel beds, the action of water would speedily cause the decay of the tender portions, such as leaves, bark, and soft wood in which case no profitable investigation could be made. Occasionally, however, around the shores of old lakes, vegetable beds have been buried, and we know that some mineral springs deposit a sort of protecting sediment on everything which they come in contact. By such means, at rare intervals, leaves, seeds, and fruits have been sealed up for future inspection, and from a careful study of all such instances, much valuable information has been obtained. At one place in the valley of the Seine was discovered under a bed of tufa the remains of a forest growth. It is not doubted that the deposit belongs to the glacial age. Yet the forest growth reminds us of that prevalent during the Miocene age. The fig tree, canary, laurel, and box tree grew in profusion. These are all southern forms. 
One severe winter would kill them all, and even hard frosts would prevent the ripening of their fruits. Neither were the summers hot and dry. This is shown by the presence of numerous plants which cannot thrive in hot and dry localities, but live in the shady woods of northern France and Germany. The evidence of this forest growth surely presents us an inviting picture of Europe during a portion of the glacial age. We are not without evidence also of a much more severe climate. In a lignite bed, species of coal, found in nearly the same latitude as the forest growth just mentioned, we detect the presence of trees that grow only in cold northern climates, such as birch, mountain pine, larch, and spruce. And in some peat bogs of southern Europe belonging to this age are found willows not growing only in Spitsbergen, and some species of mosses that only thrive far to the north. It is quite evident that this deposit testifies to an altogether different climate from that indicated by the deposit before mentioned. No theory of migration can explain this assemblage of plants unless it be migration taking place very slowly, in consequence of an equally slow change of climate. From what we have just learned of the animals and plants living in Europe during this age, we can frame some conception of the different climatic conditions of Europe. On the one hand, we have a country with a mild and genial climate. Trees of a warm latitude were then growing as far north as Paris. And we may well suppose Europe to have abounded in shady forests and grassy plains, through which flowed large rivers. It was just such a country as that in which elephants and southern animals would flourish, while vast herds of deer and bovine animals wandered over the entire length and breadth of the land. Where animal life was so abundant, there were sure to be carnivorous animals also, and lions, hyenas, tigers, and other animals added to the variety of animal life. This, however, is but one side of the picture. The other presents us with a very different scene. Instead of an abundant forest growth, the land supported only dwarf birch, arctic willows, and stunted mosses. Arctic animals such as musk, sheep, and reindeer lived all the year round in southern France. The woolly mammoth lived in Spain and Italy. In short, the climate and conditions of life were vastly different in the two stages. We must now turn our attention to the proofs of glaciers in Europe, the phenomena from which this age derives its name. Descriptions of alpine glaciers are common enough. But as glaciers and the glacial age have a great deal to do with the antiquity of man, we cannot do better than to learn what we can of their formation and their wonderful extension during this period. The schoolboy knows that by pressure he gives his snowball nearly the hardness of ice. He could make it really ice if he possessed sufficient strength. The fact is, then, that snow under the influence of pressure passes into the form of ice. In some cases, nature does this on a large scale. Where mountains are sufficiently elevated to raise their heads above the snow line, we know they are white all the year round with snow. What is not blown away, evaporated, or as an avalanche precipitated to lower heights must accumulate from year to year. But the weight pressing on the lower portions of the snowfield must soon be considerable, and at length becomes so great that the snow changes to the form of ice. But as ice, it is no longer fixed and immovable. We need not stop to explain just how this ice field moves. But the fact is that, though moving very slowly, it acts like a liquid body. It will steal away over an incline, however small, down which water would flow. Like a river, it fills the valleys leading down from the mountains. But, of course, the lower down it flows, the higher the temperature it meets, and it will sooner or later reach a point 
where it will melt as fast as it advances. This stream of ice flowing down from snow-clad mountains is called a glacier. Those we are at best acquainted with are but puny things compared with those of the polar regions, where in one case a great river of ice 60 miles wide flowing from an unknown distance some thousands of feet in depth or height pours out into the sea. We at once perceived that such a mass of ice could not pour down a valley without leaving unmistakable signs of its passage. The sides of the mountains would be deeply scarred and smooth. Projecting knobs would be worn away. The surface of the valley exposed to the enormous grinding power of the moving ice would be crushed, pulverized, and dragged along with it. Pieces of stone, like that here represented, would form part of this moving debris, and as they were crowded along, they would now and then grate over another piece of stone more firmly seated, and so their surface would be deeply scratched in the direction of their greatest length. There's always more or less water circulating under the alpine glaciers and the streams that flow from them are always very muddy, containing as they do quantities of crushed rock, sand, and clay. If, for any reason, this earthly matter was not washed out, it would form a bed of hard clay in places packed with these striated stones. Such beds of clay are known as till, or boulder clay. This is descriptive, though in a very general way, of the glaciers as they exist today. Geologists have long been aware of the fact that they have convincing proofs of the former presence of glaciers in northern Europe, where now the climate is mild. The mountains of Scotland and Wales show as distinct traces of glaciers as do those of the Alps. It is not necessary in this hasty sketch to enumerate the many grounds on which this conclusion rests. It is sufficient to state that by the united labors of many investigators in that field, we are in possession of many conclusions relating to the great glaciers of this age, which almost surpass belief, and yet they are the results of careful deductions. The former presence of this ice sheet itself is shown in the most conclusive manner by the boulder clay formed underneath the great glacier containing abundant examples of stone showing by their scratched surface that they have been ground along underneath the glacier. The rocks on the sides of the mountains are scratched exactly as those in the Alps. By observing how high up on the mountains the stria are, we know the thickness of the ice sheet, and the direction in which it moved is shown in several ways. Briefly, then, the geologist assures us that when the cold of the glacial age was at its maximum, glaciers streamed down from all the mountains of Scotland, Wales, and northern England, that the ice was thick enough to overtop all the smaller hills, and on the plains it united in one great sea of ice some thousands of feet in thickness, that it stretched as far south as the latitude of London, England, but that to the west the ice streamed out across the Irish Sea the islands to the west of Scotland, and ended far out into what is now the Atlantic. But these glaciers, vast as they were, were very small compared with the glaciers that streamed out from the mountains of Norway and Sweden. These great glaciers invaded England to the southwest, beat back the glacier ice of Scotland from the floor of the North Sea, overran Denmark, and spread their mantle of boulder clay so far south into Germany. While such was the condition of things to the north, the glaciers of the Alps were many times greater than at present. All the valleys were filled with glacier ice, and they spread out far in the plains of southern Germany and westward into France. The mountains of southern France and the Pyrenees also supported their separate system of glaciers. Ice also descended from the mountains of Asia Minor and North Africa. 
In America, we meet with traces of glaciers on a vast scale, but we cannot pause to describe them here. Note, for fuller information on this topic, see James Geeky's The Great Ice Age, also by the same author, Prehistoric Europe. In Appendix B of this latter work, the author gives a map of Europe at the climax of the glacial age, showing the great extension of the glaciers. This map embodies the results of the labors of a great many eminent scholars. See also Kroll's Climate and Time and Wallace's Island Life, pages 102-202. We are not aware that the statements as set forth above are seriously questioned by any geologists of note. Some consider it quite possible that the boulder clays of southern England and central Germany were deposited during a period of submergence from melting icebergs. Dawkins, Early Man in Britain But even this demands vast glaciers to the north of this supposed submergence to produce the icebergs. The weights of authority, however, is in favor of the glaciers. It need not surprise us, therefore, to learn of reindeer and musk sheep feeding on stunted herbage in what now constitutes southern France. When a continuous mantle of snow and ice cloaked all northern Europe, it is not at all surprising to find evidence of an extremely cold climate prevailing throughout its southern borders. We thus see how one piece of evidence fits into another, and therefore we may, with some confidence, endeavor to find proofs of more genial conditions when the snow and ice disappeared and a more luxuriant vegetation possessed the land, and animals accustomed to warm and even tropical countries roamed over a large extent of European territory. In Switzerland, it was long ago pointed out that after the ancient glaciers had for a long time occupied the low grounds of that country, they, for some cause, retreated to the mountain valleys, and allowed streams and rivers to work over the debris left behind them. At Wetzikon, most interesting conclusions have been drawn. We there learn that after the retreat of the glaciers, a lake occupied the place, which in course of time became filled with peat, and that subsequently the peat was transformed into lignite. To judge from the remains of animals and plants, the climate must have been at least as warm as that at present, and this condition of things must have prevailed over a long period of some thousands of years to explain the thick deposits of peat from which originated the lignites. But we also know that this period came to an end, and that once more the ice descended. This is shown by a fact that directly overlying the lignite beds are alternating layers of sand and gravel, and resting on these glacier-borne boulders. The same conclusion follows from the discoveries made at many other places. In Scotland, it is well known that the boulder clay contains every now and then scattered patches of peat and beds of soil either deposited in lakes or rivers. The only explanation that can be given for their presence is that they represent old land surfaces, that is, when the land was freed from ice and vegetation had again clothed it in a mantle of green. In this cut is shown one of these beds. Both above and below are the beds of boulder clay. The peat in the center varies from an inch to a foot and half in thickness and contains many fragments of wood, sticks, roots, etc., and of animals, numerous beetles were found, one kind of which frequents only places where deer and ruminant animals abound. From a large number of such discoveries, it is conclusively shown that, after all, Scotland was smothered under one enormous glacier. A change of climate occurred, and the ice melted away. Then Scotland enjoyed a climate capable of nourishing sufficient vegetation to induce mammoths, Irish deer, 
horses and great oxen to occupy the land. But the upper boulder clay no less conclusively shows that once more the climate became cold, and ice overflowed all the lowlands and buried under a new accumulation of boulder clay, such parts of the old land surface as it did not erode. Substantially, the same set of changes are observed in English and German geology. Note, Prehistoric Europe, page 261. It is no longer a question that there was at least one mild period separating two periods of cold in Europe. See Lubbock's Prehistoric Times, page 316. Dawkins' Early Man in Britain, pages 115 to 20. Lyle's Antiquity of Man, pages 282 to 285. Dana's Manual of Geology. First edition, page 561. Haywood Hears, Primeval World of Switzerland, volume 2, page 203. Wallace's Island Life, page 114. Kroll's Climate and Time. Mr. Geeky, in his works, The Great Ice Age and Prehistoric Europe, maintains there were several warm interglacial epochs. Having thus given an outline of the climatic changes which took place in Europe during the glacial age, and the grounds on which these strange conclusions rest, we must now turn our attention to the appearance of man. The uncertainties which hung over his presence in the earlier periods spoken of in the former chapter do not apply to the proofs of his presence during this age, though it is far from settled at what particular portion of the glacial age he came into Europe. We must remember we are to investigate the past and to awaken an interest in the history of a people who trod this earth in ages long ago. The evidence on which we establish a history of the early tribes of Europe is necessarily fragmentary, but still a portion here and a piece there are found to form one whole, and enable us to form a quite vivid conception of manners and times now very far remote. It is not claimed that we have surmounted every difficulty, on the contrary, there is yet much to be deciphered. But in some respects, we are now better acquainted with these shadowy tribes of early times than with those whose history has been recorded by the historian's facile pen. He has given us record of blood. He acquaints us with the march of vast armies, tells us of pillaged cities, and gives us the names of a long roll of titled kings. But unfortunately, we know little of the home life, the occupation, or of those little things which make up the culture of a people. But the knowledge of primitive tribes gathered from the scanty remains of their implements, from a thorough exploration of their cavern homes, has made us acquainted with much of their home life and surroundings. And we are not entirely ignorant as to such topics as their trade, government, and religion. We must not forget that this is a knowledge of tribes and peoples who lived here in times immeasurably ancient, as compared with those in existence at the very dawn of history. We must try and form a mental picture of what was probably the primitive state of man, and a little judicious reasoning from known facts will do much for us in this direction. Some writers have contended that the first condition of man was that of pleasing innocence, combined with a high degree of enlightenment, which, owing to the wickedness of mankind, he gradually lost. This ideal picture, however consonant with our wishes, must not only give way before the massive information now at our command, but has really no foundation in reason. Or, at any rate, if this primitive condition of innocence and enlightenment ever existed, it must have disappeared at a period preceding the present archaeological investigations. Nothing is plainer than that our present civilization has been developed from barbarism, as that was from savagism. 
We need to go back but a few centuries in the history of any nation before we find them emerging from a state of barbarism. The energy and intelligence of the Anglo-Saxon has spread his language to the four corners of the globe. He has converted the wilderness into fruitful fields and reared cities in desert lands. Yet his history strikingly illustrates our point. A century back and we are already in a strange land. The prominent points of present civilization were yet unthought of. No bands of iron united distant cities. No nerves of wire flashed electric speech. The wealth of that day could not buy many articles conducive of comfort, such as now grace the homes of the poor. The contrast is still more apparent when we recall another of the countless centuries of the past. England, with Europe, was but just awakening to modern life. Printing had but just been invented. Great discoveries had been made and mankind was but just beginning those first feeble efforts which were to bring to us our modern comforts. But a millennium of years ago, and the foundation of English civilization had but just been laid by the union of the rude Germanic tribes of the Saxons and the Angles. Similar results attend the ultimate analysis of any civilization. It was but yesterday that wandering hordes, bound together by the loose cohesion of tribal organization and possessing but the germ of modern enlightenment, held sway in what is now the fairest portion of the world. And we, the descendants of these rude people, must reflect that the end is not yet, that the onward march of progress is one of ever-hastening steps, and that in all human probability the sun of a thousand years hence will shine on a people whose civilization will be as superior to ours as the light of day exceeds the mellow glow of a moonlit night. If such are the changes of but a few centuries, what must we not consider the changes to have been during the countless ages that have sped away since man first appeared on the scene? The early Greek and Roman writers were much nearer right when they considered primitive man to have been a slight degree removed from the brute world. Horace thus expresses himself, When animals first crept forth from the newly formed earth, a dumb and filthy herd, they fought for acorns and lurking places, with their nails and with fists, then with clubs, and at last with arms, which taught by experience they had forged. Then they invented names for things and words to express their thoughts, after which they began to desist from war, to fortify cities, and enact laws. The learning of modern times leads to much the same conclusion. It is evident that primitive man must have been destitute of metals, for it requires a great deal of knowledge and experience to extract metals from their ores. In the eyes of savages, the various metallic ores are simply so many varieties of stone much less valuable for his purposes than flint or some other varieties. We know it to be historically true that a great many nations have been discovered utterly destitute of any knowledge of metals. When we reflect how much of our present enlightenment is due to the use of metals, we can readily see that their discovery marks a most important epoch in the history of man. There is, then, every reason to suppose that stone was a most important article for primitive man. It was the material with which he fought his battle for existence, and we need not be surprised that its use extended through an enormously long period of time. Not only was primitive man thus low down in the scale, but of necessity his progress must have been very slow. The time during which men were utterly destitute of a knowledge of metals far exceeds the interval that has elapsed since that important discovery. Scholars divide the Stone Age into two parts 
In the first, the stone implements are very few of simple shapes, and in the main formed of but one variety of stone, generally flint, and they were never polished. In the second division, we meet with a great many different implements, each adapted to a different purpose. Different varieties of stone were employed, and they also made use of bone, shell, and wood, which were often beautifully polished. From what we have learned of the development of primitive society, it will not surprise us to learn that the first division of the age of stone comprises a vastly greater portion of time, and is far more ancient than the second. We will give an outline showing the order of use of different materials, but it is here necessary to remark that the bronze was the first metal that man learned to use, and iron the second. Order in which different materials were used for weapons and implements by primitive man. Age of stone. Rough or Old Stone Age, Paleolithic, Polished or New Stone Age, Neolithic, Age of Metals, Bronze Age, Iron Age. In this outline, the words Paleolithic and Neolithic are the scientific terms for the two divisions of the Stone Age, and will be used so in these pages. The only races of men that we could expect to find in Europe during the Glacial Age would be the Paleolithic tribes and it is equally manifest that we must find traces of them in beds of this age, or in association with animals that are characteristic of this age, or else we cannot assert the existence of man at this time. The valley of the river Somme in northern France has become classical ground to the study of archaeology, since it was there that such investigations as we have just mentioned were first and most abundantly made. It is now well known that the surface features of a country, that is, its hills and dales, its uplands and lowlands, are mainly due to the erosive power of running water. Our rivers have dug for themselves broad valleys, undermined and carried away hills, and in general carved the surface of a country until the present appearance is the result. It must be confessed that when we perceive the slow apparent change from year to year and from that attempt to estimate the time required to produce the effects we see before us, we are apt to shrink from the lapse of time demanded for its accomplishment. Let us not forget that time is long, and that causes, however trifling, work stupendous results in the courses of ages. But a river, which is thus digging down its channel in one place, deposits the materials so dug away at another, and lower levels as beds of sand and gravel. In the course of time, as the river gradually lowers its channel, it will leave behind, at varying heights along its banks, scattered patches of such beds. Wherever we find them, no matter how far removed or how high above the present river, we are sure that at some time the river flowed at that height. And standing there, we may try to imagine how different the country must have looked before the present deep valley was eroded. In the case of the river Somme, we have a wide and deep valley a large part of which has been excavated in chalk rock, through which the river now winds its way in a sinuous course to the English Channel. Yet we feel sure that at some time in the past it was a mighty stream, and that its waters surged along over a bed at least 200 feet higher than now. In proof of this fact, we still find at different places along the chalky bluff stretches of old gravel banks laid down there by the river, reaching sometimes as high as 200 feet above the present water level although their usual elevation does not exceed 40 feet. The history of the investigation of the ancient gravel beds of the Somme is briefly this. More than one instance had been noted of the finding of flint implements, apparently the work of men, 
in association with bones of various animals, such as hyenas, mammoths, musk, sheep, and others, which, as we have just seen, lived in Europe during the glacial age. In a number of cases, such finds have been made in caves. But for a long time, no one attributed any especial value to these discoveries, and various were the explanations given to account for such commingling. A French geologist, by the name of Boucher de Perthes, had noted the occurrence of a similar flint implements and bones of these extinct animals in a gravel pit on the banks of the Somme near Abbeville, France. He was convinced that they proved the existence of a man at the time these ancient animals lived in Europe. But no one paid any attention to his opinions on this subject, and a collection of these implements which he took to Paris in 1839 was scarcely noticed by the scientific world. They were certainly very rude and presented but indistinct traces of chipping, and perhaps it is not strange that he failed to convince anyone of their importance. He therefore determined to make a thorough and systematic exploration of these beds at Abbeville. In 1847, he published his great work on this subject, giving over 1,600 cuts of the various articles he had found, claiming that they were proof positive of the presence of man when the gravels were depositing. Now, there are several questions to be answered before the conclusions of the French geologists can be accepted. In the first place, are these so-called flint implements of human workmanship? From our illustrations, we see that they are of an oval shape, tending to a cutting edge all around and generally more or less pointed at one end. The testimony of all competent persons who have examined them is that however rude they may be, they were undoubtedly fashioned by man. Dr. C. C. Abbott has made some remarks on implements found in another locality, equally applicable to the ones in question. He says, We find on comparing a specimen of these chipped stones with an accidentally fractured pebble that the chipped surfaces of the former all tend toward the production of a cutting edge, and there is no proportion of the stone detached which does not add to the availability of the supposed implement as such. While in the case of a pebble that has been accidentally broken, there is necessarily all absence of design in the fracturing. Like the watch found on the moor, they show such manifest evidence of design that we cannot doubt that they were produced by the hand of man. But it is not enough to know that they are artificial. We must also know that they are the same age as the beds in which they are found. This cut represents a section of a gravel pit at saint Ecule on the Somme. The implements are nearly always found in the lowest strata, which is a bed of gravel from 10 to 14 feet thick. Overlying this are beds of marl, loam, and surface soil, comprising in all a depth of 14 feet. It has been suggested that the implements are comparatively recent, and have sunk down from above by their own weight, or perhaps have been buried in artificial excavations. The beds are, however, too compact to admit any supposition that they may have been sunk there and if buried in any excavation, evident traces of such excavation would have remained. We can account for their presence there in no other way than that when the river rolled along at that high elevation and deposited great beds of sand, these implements were some way lost in its waters and became buried in the gravel deposits. Finally, we have to consider the age of the deposits. This is a question that can be answered only by geologists and we may be sure that no more than ordinary attention has been bestowed upon them. The remains of many animals characteristic of the glacial age were found in the beds at Abbeville, 
These include those of the elephants, rhinoceros, hyenas, cave bear, and cave lion. In the formation of these gravel beds, ice has undoubtedly played quite an important part. Boulders that could have got there only by the aid of ice are found in several localities. Evidence gathered from a great many different sources all establish the fact that these gravels date as far back as the close of the glacial age, at least. And there are some reasons for supposing them to be interglacial. We can easily see that the melting away of the immense glaciers that we have been describing would produce vast floods in the rivers. And it is perhaps owing to the presence of such swollen rivers that are due to the great beds of surface soil, called loam or loess, found in all the river valleys of France and Germany. Note, Geeky's uh, Prehistoric Europe, Chapter 9, most geologists suppose there was a general depression of the region below the sea level, or so as to form inland lakes, and that the lus was thus deposited, as perhaps it is deposited at the present time in the lakes of Switzerland. Right. These deposits frequently overlie the gravel beds. They are then of a later date than the beds in which are found such convincing proofs of the presence of man. And if they themselves date from the close of the glacial age, it is no longer a question whether the gravel beds themselves belong to that age. Thus we see that we can no longer escape the conclusions of Boucher de Perthes. The discovery of rudely worked flints in the drift of the Somme River thus establishes the fact that some time during the glacial age, man in a Paleolithic state lived in France. Geological terms convey to us no definite ideas as to the lapse of time, and we have an instinctive desire to substitute for them some term of years. In most cases, this is impossible, as we have no means to measure the flight of past time, nor are we yet prepared to discuss the question of time, since to do so we must learn a great deal more about the cause of the glacial age. We might, however, cite statements which cannot fail to impress us with the fact that a great extent of time has passed. In the case of the River Somme, we have a valley in some places a mile or more in width and about 200 feet in depth. This has mostly been excavated in chalk rock. Taking our present large rivers as a basis, it would require from one to 200,000 years for the Somme to perform this work. It will not do, however, to take the present action of our rivers as a guide, since we have every reason to suppose this work went forward much more rapidly in past times. But we cannot escape the conclusion that it demands a very long time indeed to explain it. The valley has remained in its present shape long enough to admit the formation of great beds of peat in some portions. Peat is formed by the decomposition of vegetable growth. Its growth is in all cases slow, depending entirely upon local circumstances. European scholars who have made peat formation a special study assure us that to form such immense beds as occur near Abbeville, several thousand years are required, even under the most favorable conditions. Yet we would be scarcely willing to rest such important conclusions as the foregoing on the researches of one individual or in one locality. As already stated, the Perthes made his discoveries public in 1847. Yet they were so opposed to all that had been believed previously that but few took the pains to investigate for themselves. In 1853, Dr. Rigelot of Amiens, who had been skeptical as to de Perthes, commenced to look for himself in the gravel beds at St. Aqua, about nine miles below Abbeville. As might be expected, he was soon convinced. 
It may be said that the scientific world formally accepted the new theory when such English scientists as Evans, Falconer, Lyle, and Prestwich reported in its favor. Since that time, many discoveries of ancient implements have been made at various places in France and England, under circumstances similar to those in the Valley of the Somme. In England, they have been found along almost all the rivers in the southern and southeastern part. One class of discoveries there gives us new ideas as to the extent of time that has passed since they were deposited. That is where they occur in gravel beds, having no connection with the present system of rivers. In one case, the gravel forms a hill 15 feet high, situated in the midst of a swampy district, surrounded on all sides by low, flat surfaces. Several such instances could be given, but in all such cases, we cannot doubt that somewhere near there once rolled the waters of an ancient river, that man once hunted along its banks, and that owing to some natural cause the waters forsook their ancient bed, and that since then, in the slow course of ages, the action of running water has removed so much of the surface of the land near there that we cannot guess at its ancient configuration. We only know from scattered patches of gravel that we are standing on the banks of an ancient watercourse. One instance, illustrative of the great change that has come over the surface features of the country, demanding for their accomplishment a great lapse of time, is furnished by the Isle of Wight. That island is now separated from the mainland by a narrow channel called the Southampton Water, or the Solent Sea. It is now known that this is nothing but an old river channel, in which the sea has usurped the place of the river. The coast is a river embankment with the usual accompaniments of gravel beds, flint implements, and fresh water shells. On the shores of the island we find the opposite bank of the old river. A very great change must have taken place in the surface features before the sea could have rolled in and cut off the Isle of Wight from the mainland. In speaking of the length of time demanded for this change, Dr. Evans says, who can fully understand how immeasurably remote was the epoch when what is now that vast bay was high and dry land, and a long range of chalk downs, 600 feet above the sea, bounded the horizon on the south? And yet, that must have been the sight that met the eye of primitive man who frequented the banks of that ancient river, which buried their handiwork in gravels that now cap the cliffs and of the course of which so strange and indubitable a memorial subsists in what has now become the Solent Sea. The illustrations scattered throughout this essay are representations of the stone implements found in the drift of European rivers. During all the long course of time supposed to be covered by the Paleolithic Age, there are but very few evidences of any improvement, as far as we can judge from the implements themselves. This is in itself a melancholy proof of the low condition of man. He had made so little advance in the scale of wisdom, he possessed so little knowledge, he was so much a creature of instinct, that during the thousands of years demanded for this age, he made no appreciable progress. The advance of the last century was many times greater than that of the entire Paleolithic age. A blow struck on one end of a piece of flint will, owing to the peculiar cleavage of flint, split off pieces called flakes. This is the simplest form of implement used by man. It is impossible to say with certainty how they were used, but from the evidence observed on them, they were probably used as scrapers. 
The men of that day doubtless knew some simple method of preparing clothing from the skins of the animals they had killed, and probably many of these sharp-rimmed flakes were used to assist in this primitive process of tanning. When the piece of flint itself was chipped into form, it was one whose shape would indicate a spearhead or hatchet. We present illustrations of each. Forms intermediate between these two are found. Some have such a thick, heavy base that it is believed that they were used in the hand and had no handle or haft. Others, with a cutting edge all round, may have been provided with a handle. M. Fortillet of France, who has had excellent opportunities of studying the question very thoroughly, thinks that the hatchet was the only type of implement they possessed, and that it was used for every conceivable purpose, but that their weapon was a club, all traces of which have, of course, long since vanished away. These few implements imply that their possessors were savages like the native Australians. In this stage of culture, man lived by hunting and had not yet learned to till the ground or to seek the materials out of which his implements were made by mining. He merely fashioned the stones, which happened to be within his reach in the shallows of the rivers as they were wanted, throwing them away after they had been used. In this manner, the large numbers which have been met with in certain spots may be accounted for. Man at this time appears before us as a nomad hunter, poorly equipped for the struggle of life. Without knowledge of metals and ignorant of the art of grinding his stone tools to a sharp edge. Of course, we cannot hope to learn much of their social condition other than that just set forth. The Perthes found some flints which show evidence of their human origin, and yet it would be very difficult to say what was their use. He thinks they may have a religious significance and has set forth a great variety of eloquent surmises respecting them. It only need be said that such theorizing is worse than useless, that while it is very probable these tribes had some system of belief, yet there is no good reason for supposing these flints had any connection with it. It has been supposed from another series of wrought flints that the men of this epoch were possessed of some sentiments of art as pieces have been found thought to represent the forms of animals, men's faces, birds, and fishes. But as very few have been able to detect such resemblances, it is safe to say that they do not exist. As the love of adornment is almost as old as human nature itself, we may not be surprised to find traces of its sway then. Dr. Rigolo found little bunches of shells with holes through either end. The supposition is that these were used as beads which is not at all strange, considering how instinctively savage men delight in such ornaments. These ancient hunters made use of beads partially prepared by nature. Europe is not the only country where the remains of the savage race are found. They are found in the countries bordering the Mediterranean in northern Africa and in Egypt. In this latter country they are doubtlessly largely buried under the immense deposits of the Nile mud. Yet in 1878, Professor Haynes discovered in Upper Egypt scrapers and hatchets pronounced by archaeologists to be exactly similar to those of the River Somme. We are not informed as to their geological age, but there can be no question that they are much older than any monument of Egyptian civilization hitherto known. Paleolithic implements have also been found in Palestine and in India. In the latter country, the beds are so situated that they present the same indicia of age as do those of the Somme Valley. A great portion of the formation has been removed and deep valleys cut in them by running water. They've also been found in at least one locality in the United States. That is in the glacial gravel of the valley of the Delaware at Trenton, 
New Jersey. We must not confound these remains with those of the Indian tribes found scattered over a large extent of surface. Those at Trenton also are not only in all respects except materials similar to those of the Somme, but are found embedded in a formation of gravel that was deposited at least as far back as the close of the glacial age, thus requiring the passage of the same long series of years since they were used, as do the implements of European rivers. We must also bear in mind that no country has been so carefully explored for these implements as has Europe, and that the very country, Asia, where for many reasons we might hope to find not only unequivocal proofs of man's presence, but from our discoveries be able to clear up many dark points as to the race, origin, and fate of these primitive tribes, is yet almost a sealed book. But the scattered discoveries we have instanced shows us that the people whose implements have been described in this chapter were very widely dispersed over the earth, and everything indicates that they were far removed from us in time. The similarity in type of implements shows that, wherever found, they were the same people in the same low, savage state of culture, alike in the somber forests of oak and pine in Great Britain and when surrounded by the luxuriant vegetation of the Indian jungle. We have yet two important points to consider. The first is, what race of men were these river tribes? And second, when did they arrive in Europe? Did they precede the glacial cold? Did they make their appearance during a warm interglacial period? Or was it not until the final retreat of the glaciers that they first wandered into Europe? These questions are far from settled, yet they have been the object of a great amount of painstaking research. To determine the first point, it is necessary that Anatomists have skeletons of the men of this age to make a careful study of them. But for a great many reasons, portions of the human skeleton are very rarely found in such circumstances that we are sure they date back to the Paleolithic age. And especially is this true of the men of the river drift. In a few instances, fragmentary portions have been found. M. Quatrefages of France, who is certainly a very high authority on these points, thinks that the hunter tribes of the River Drift belong to the Kahnstadt race, so named from the village of Kahnstadt in Germany, near which a fossil skull was discovered in 1700 and which appears to be closely allied to the Neanderthal skull discovered near Dusseldorf in 1857 and about which so much has been written. Quatrefages supposes that this type of man is still to be found in certain Australian tribes. These are not mere guesses, but are conclusions drawn from careful study by eminent European scholars. It is well known that a competent naturalist needs but a single fossil bone to describe the animal itself and tells us of its habits. So also anthropologists need but fragments of the human skeleton, especially of the skull, to describe the characteristics of the race to which the individual belonged. This cut, though an ideal restoration, is a restoration made in accordance with the results of careful study of fragmentary skulls found in various localities in Europe. The head and the face present a savage aspect. The body harmonized with the head. The height was not more than five feet and a half, yet the bones are very thick in proportion to their length, and were evidently supplied with a powerful set of muscles since the little protuberances and depressions where the muscles are attached are remarkably well-developed. Huxley and Quatrefages have both pointed out that representatives of this race are to be found among some Australian tribes. Among the races of this great island, there is one distributed particularly in the province of Victoria in the neighborhood of Port Western, 
which reproduces in a remarkable manner the characters of the Kanstadt race. Not the least interesting result of this discovery is the similarity of weapons and implements. With Mr. Lartet, we see in the obsidian lances of the New Caledonian the flint heads of the lower alluvium of the Somme. The hatchet of certain Australians reminds us, as it did Sir Charles Lyell, of the Abbeville hatchet. Yet some hesitate about accepting these interesting inferences, thinking that the portions of the human skeleton thus far recovered, which are beyond a doubt referable to this period, are too fragmentary to base such important conclusions upon. This is the view of Boyd Dawkins, who thinks we cannot refer them to any branch of the human race now alive. We are without a clue, he continues, to the ethnology of the river drift man, who most probably is as completely extinct as the holy rhinoceros or the cave bear. Future discoveries will probably settle this point. It is yet a much disputed point to what particular portion of the glacial age we can trace the appearance of man. We can profitably note the tendency of scientific thought in this direction. But a short time has elapsed since a few scholars here and there began to urge an antiquity for man extending back beyond the commonly accepted period of 6,000 years. Though it is now well known and admitted that there are no good grounds for this estimate, yet such was its hold, such its sway over scientific as well as popular thought, that an appeal to this chronology was deemed sufficient answer to the discoveries of the Perthes, Schmerling, and others. It was but yesterday that this popular belief was overthrown and due weight given the discoveries of careful explorers in many branches and the antiquity of man referred on indisputable grounds to a point of time at least as far back as the close of the preceding geological age. Note, we do not give any estimate in years as to the antiquity in this chapter. It seems as if here a halt had been called and all possible objections are urged against a further extension of time. It is, of course, well to be careful in this matter, and to accept only such results as inevitably follow from well-authenticated discoveries. But it also seems to us there is no longer any doubt that man dates back to the beginning of that long-extended time we have named the Glacial Age. In the first place, we must recall the animals that suddenly made their appearance in Europe at the beginning of this age. Though there were a number of species since become extinct, the majority of animal forms were those still living. Note, we must remember that this age is also variously called the Quaternary, Pleistocene, and Post-Tertiary. We do not now refer to the evidence of man's existence in the Miocene and Pliocene, treated of in the preceding chapter. Another note, Mr. Dawkins finds that 55 out of 77 species are yet living early man in Britain. These are the animals with which man has always been associated. There is therefore no longer any reason to suppose the evolution of animal life had not reached that stage where man was to appear. We need only recall how strongly this point was urged in reference to the preceding geological epoch, to see its important bearings here. Mr. Boyd Dawkins has shown that the great majority of animals which invaded Europe at the commencement of this age can be traced to northern and central Asia, whence, owing to climactic changes, they migrated into Europe. Inasmuch as man seems to have been intimately associated with these animals, it seems to us very likely that he came with them from their home in Asia, 
We think the tendency of modern discoveries is to establish the fact that man arrived in Europe along with the great invasion of species now living. Note, those who reject the proofs of the existence of man in Pliocene times because the evolution of life had not then reached the stage where we could hope to find man are here confronted with a difficulty. If Mr. Dawkins be right, as stated above, then the various animals in question must have been living in Asia during the preceding Pliocene age. There is no reason to suppose that man was not associated with them, since he belongs to the same stage of evolution. Lacontes, Elements of Geology, page 568. And though, owing to climatic and geographical causes, the animals themselves might have been confined to Asia, there is surely no good reason why man may not, in small bands, and at various times have wandered into Europe. Turning now to the authorities, we find this to be the accepted theory of many of those competent to form an opinion. In England, Mr. Geeky has strongly urged the theory that the glacial age includes not only periods of great cold, but also epochs of exceptional mildness. And he strongly argues that all the evidence of the river drift tribes can be referred to these warm interglacial periods. In other words, that they were living in Europe during the glacial age. In answer to this, it has been stated that the relics of river drift tribes in southern England overlie boulder clay, and must therefore be later in origin than the glacial age. But Mr. Geeky and others have shown that the ice of the last great cold did not overflow southern England, so that this evidence, rightly read, was really an argument in favor of their interglacial age. The committee appointed to the British Association to explore the Victorian cave near Settle urged this point very strongly in their final report of 1878. To this report, Mr. Dawkins, a member of the committee, records his dissent. But in his last great work, he freely admits that man was living in England during the glacial age, if he did not, in fact, precede it. Mr. Skirchley of the British Coast Survey in 1879 announced the discovery in East Anglia of Paleolithic implements underlying the boulder clay of that section. Mr. Geeky justly regards this as a most important discovery. Finally, Mr. Dawkins, in his address as president of the Anthropological Section of the British Association in 1882, goes over the entire ground. After alluding to the discovery of Paleolithic implements in Egypt, India, and America, he continues, The identity of implements of the river drift hunter proves that he was in the same rude state of civilization, if it can be called civilization, in the old and the new world, when the hand of the geological clock struck the same hour. It is not a little strange that this mode of life should have been the same in the forests of the north and the south of the Mediterranean, in Palestine and the tropical forests of India, and on the western shores of the Atlantic. This, however, is not taken as proving the identity of race, but as proving that in this morning time of man's existence he had nowhere advanced beyond a low state of savagism. Mr. Dawkins then continues, It must be inferred from his widespread range that he must have inhabited the earth for a long time, and that his dispersal took place before the glacial epoch in Europe and America. I therefore feel inclined to view the river drift hunter as having invaded Europe in preglacial times, along with the other living species which then appeared. He also points out that the evidence is that he lived in Europe during all the changes of that prolonged period known as the glacial age. Sir John Lubbock also records his assent to these views. He says on this point, 
It is, I think, more than probable that the advent of the glacial period found man already in possession of Europe. In our own country, Professor Powell says, It is now an established fact that man was widely scattered over the earth, at least as early as the beginning of the Quaternary period and perhaps in Pliocene times. This completes our investigation of the men of the river drift. We see how, by researches of careful scholars, our knowledge of the past has been enlarged. Though there are many points which are as yet hidden in darkness, we are enabled to form quite a clear mental picture of this early race. Out of the darkness which still enshrouds the continent of Asia, we see these bands of savages wandering forth, some to Europe, Africa, and the West, others to America and the East. This was at a time when slowly falling temperature but dimly prophesied a reign of Arctic cold, still far in the future. This race does not seem to have had much capacity for advancement, since ages came and went leaving him in the same low state. During the climax of glacial cold, he doubtless sought the southern coasts of Europe along with the temperate species of animals. But whenever the climactic conditions were such that these animals could find subsistence as far north as England, he accompanied them there, and so his remains are found constantly associated with theirs throughout Europe. Though doubtless very low in the scale and at the very foot of the ladder of human progress, we are acquainted with no facts connecting them with the higher orders of animals. If such exists, we must search for them further back in geological time. The men of the river drift were distinctively human beings, and as such, possessed these qualities which, developing throughout the countless ages that have elapsed, have advanced man to his present high position. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.